Matthew chapter 21, we're looking at verses 1 through 11 today. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 826. I'm going to begin by reading through the passage this morning, then I'll offer a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. So I'll begin in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. Note how Jesus identifies himself as the Lord here. And he will send them at once. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, now he quotes the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the start of Holy Week and for this day, Palm Sunday. Lord, we thank you for for all that this day signifies, and we look forward to exploring it together today. Pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us as we study your word. Give us a a greater sense of, of what Jesus was doing on Palm Sunday so that we might better appreciate him and his ministry. Pray that you would give us a desire to come under his lordship. Lord, might our time be honoring to you edifying to us, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. So we know today that Jesus is the Messiah, but during his earthly ministry, Jesus actually concealed that fact for most of his time. And at first, that might seem strange to us. You might recall some of those portions of the Gospels where Jesus would would perform this incredible miracle for someone, and they would be so excited that they just wanted to tell all their friends and family. But then Jesus would say to them, don't tell anyone who healed you. Keep that a secret. For most of his ministry, Jesus was doing this, keeping his identity as the Messiah a secret. What might seem strange to us that he would do this after all the The hope of of the Messiah was the great hope of Israel. It's what the prophets of the Old Testament had repeatedly been directing the Jewish uh, eyes to. And now he was finally come. He was here in the world and he was doing his work. But still, he is telling people to keep it a secret. 
Well, it's not that strange uh, when you do a little bit more reading, because what we find out is that not only was it not strange, but it was really smart and really necessary for Jesus to conceal who he was for most of his life. You see, Jesus understood that the moment he went public with his identity as Messiah, he was going to unleash that series of events which would lead to his crucifixion. He knew that was going to happen. His declaration was going to invite a tremendous amount of opposition. And within a matter of days of revealing himself publicly, he would die. Jesus knew that that what would happen. Jesus was not afraid to die, but he was also in control of events at the same time, and he was not going to submit himself to death until all had been done and all had been said that God had called him to do. And so he was waiting for just the right time. After all had been said and all had been done, then he would reveal himself to the world. And then he would be in charge of his own death. He would determine when that series of events would begin to unfold. And so that's what Jesus was doing throughout his ministry. And on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today, Jesus determined that the time had come for him to broadcast who he was, namely the King of the Jews, the Savior of the world. He was the Messiah and then to complete the work that he had been called to do. And this is what, makes, uh, is what makes Palm Sunday so special to us. I mean, this is the day when Jesus finally told the world he is king and he is savior for all. And as we look at verse 1 of our passage, you'll, you'll find that he chose the perfect location to broadcast who he is. He chose the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. It was also the focal point for all the Jewish hopes about Messiah. It would all be centered there in Jerusalem. It also happened to be the largest city in that part of the world. Contemporary uh, scholars suggested there were upwards of 100,000 residents of that city in Jesus' day. It was a massive city by ancient standards. He chose the perfect place to reveal himself as Messiah, but then he also chose the perfect timing as well. You see, this was the beginning of Passover week. And Passover week was the biggest week on the Jewish calendar. This is the week that the Jewish people celebrated their rescue out of Egypt, out of slavery, and their march into the promised land. Passover week would attract multiplied thousands of people. In fact, one historian, Josephus, who who lived at the time, said that as many as two million people from around the known world would come to Jerusalem during Passover week. So Jerusalem was already the focal point for Messianic hope. It was already the largest city in the region. But now in choosing Passover week to come to Jerusalem, Jesus has chosen a time where where the number of people would be maximized who could hear his declaration. 
Potentially two million people would have been there from all over the world. They had made their pilgrimage here, and now they were ready to hear Jesus say, I am the King. I am the Savior. I am Messiah. You'll notice the method that Jesus chose. Verses 2 and 3 again say that he uh, instructed his disciples to go into the village in front of them. That was the village of Bethpage, which was just about one mile from Jerusalem. So the last stop before getting to that holy city. And he tells his disciples they're going to find a donkey tied up in Bethpage, and there's a colt with her, and they are to untie the donkey and the colt, bring them to Jesus, and then Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey. So for the final mile of his journey into Jerusalem, it'll be on the back of this animal. Now, why a donkey? Well, it's because of the prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You see that in verse 5 of our text. There were many, many prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah. And these prophecies were there so that the Jewish people would know him when he arrived. One of the prophecies was found here in Zechariah 9, and it said, Your king will come to you riding on a donkey. So he's going to come to Jerusalem, the holy city, on the donkey. And so what Jesus is doing here is intentionally fulfilling a prophecy about Messiah to make sure that every single thing the Old Testament prophets said about Messiah would be fulfilled and that the people would know that this is really who he was. Now, to us, it might sound strange that a a king would ride on the back of a donkey. After all, in our day, a donkey is kind of a a humorous animal. We have cartoons that that feature characters that are donkeys. But in in the ancient Middle East, this was not the case. Uh, A donkey was a great animal for that part of the world, and kings and nobles and all kinds of important people would ride on the backs of donkeys. So there there was nothing unusual uh, about this choice of animal. The only thing that it did signify, as you can see in the prophecy, is that it, it emphasized the humility of the king. Because, you see, the other option that a king had was to ride on his war horse. If a king does that, he is, he is entering a city with pomp and circumstance. He is, he is uh, showcasing himself as a great warrior. If you ride on the back of a donkey, you're signifying that you're on a, a peaceful mission. And there's no pomp and, and circumstance as much as there is just um, the, the, the peaceful ride into the city. And so Jesus was declaring himself to be Messiah, but to be a Messiah on a mission of peace. It was a humble mission. You'll notice that as Jesus began riding that last mile into Jerusalem, uh, on the back of that donkey, the people around him understood exactly what he was doing. Verses 6 through 8 show us that, that the crowds begin throwing their own cloaks on the road, okay? So, so there, there he goes. He's got a large entourage with him, okay? He's at the height of his popularity at this stage. And he's, he's 
on the back of that donkey, riding into Jerusalem. They all say, oh, we know what this is. And they had been hoping that this, that this would be true, that Jesus would be the Messiah. Because they had been following him. They have seen his, his miracles. They have heard his teachings. There's been all of these rumors swirling around. Could this be the one? Of course, the 12 disciples, they already know. They've had that conversation with Jesus. But the, the others in the crowds following, it's just been rumors and they're wondering. But now, here is Jesus on the back of the donkey, marching into Jerusalem. Now, everything's been cleared up. They know what this is, and they are really, really excited. And so they start pulling off their cloaks, and they're throwing it on the road in front of Jesus. And then it says other people were were running out and, and finding tree branches and chopping the tree branches down. These were palm trees. And they were laying the palm branches out on the road in front of Jesus and letting him walk over top of them. This was their version of rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. After all, he is the Messiah. He deserves the celebrity treatment. So they lay out the cloaks and the palm branches and give him as grand an entrance as they can. Verse 9 shows us that as they get closer and closer to Jerusalem's gates, they get more and more excited The Messiah is about to enter the eternal city. Nothing could be more exciting if you were a Jewish person at this time. And they begin shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna means, Lord, save us. It's also an expression of excitement. So, Lord, save us, or Lord, be our Savior. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then verse 10 They finally cross through the gates. They enter into the city of Jerusalem. And this great crowd is is following in Jesus' train. And now everyone in the city is coming out to meet Jesus. And they're wondering, what is all the commotion about? And so they come and they start asking people, what's going on? What's, What's the big show? And the people say, he's come. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one. He's our king. He's our savior, the one God promised. What an incredible scene this is. The long-awaited Messiah finally riding into the holy city, declaring himself to be king and savior. And to see the excitement of the people. It all looks like such an amazing thing happening here. But you know what? Things were not exactly as they appeared on the surface. Not exactly. See, the Jewish people clearly wanted a king. That's obvious from their response. But the kind of king they wanted was not going to be the kind of king that Jesus was. See, a lot had happened between the the closing of the Old Testament Scriptures when the last prophet spoke and the opening of the New Testament era when Jesus arrived. Uh, A lot had happened in, in that period of time. A little before then, the Jewish nation had been overrun by the Babylonian Empire. Their people had been taken into captivity. 
Um, the, the whole nation had been utterly destroyed. That had happened about six years, 600 years prior to Jesus' arrival. And then the Old Testament prophets had come to an end, and they had stopped speaking. And so for, for about four centuries, the nation of Israel had been living under an occupying force, right? the, the pagan Babylonian Empire, and they had had no prophets from God speaking to them. Eventually, the Babylonian Empire um, was, was destroyed, it was overthrown, but then new superpowers came onto the scene. And Israel was overrun by Alexander the Great, and then it was taken over by the uh, Roman Empire. And that was the situation at the time of Jesus. Israel was not an independent nation, instead it was just a province of the Roman Empire. And there were uh, Roman governors overseeing the land, and there were Roman soldiers stationed everywhere. And Rome was a, a tough occupier. Okay? They, they did not give the Jewish people a light touch. You know, a couple of centuries before Jesus had arrived, there had been some glimmers of hope. There was this family called the, the Maccabees, and they had led an insurrection against the foreign occupiers. They had even had a little bit of success. For, for a brief period of time, Israel had once again enjoyed some level of autonomy. But that rebellion was finally crushed. And the, the foreign occupiers were, were now coming down harder than ever before. And this is where the Jewish people found themselves as Jesus was marching into Jerusalem, declaring himself to be the Messiah. You know, as the years had passed, their, their desires for their Messiah had changed. The Old Testament prophets had spoken of a Messiah who would come and, and take away everyone's sins, that he would make atonement for their sins, that he would give them a, a reconciled relationship with God and, and all of these wonderful spiritual blessings. But, but after centuries and centuries of living under these occupying forces in Israel, all they really wanted now was just a political hero, right? They, they wanted somebody who, who could be like the Maccabees, only succeed to, to raise up a, a rebel army and destroy the Romans, Give them their power back. That's what they, they really wanted at this point. So they wanted a king all right. But they wanted a king who would kill for them. They were no longer interested in a king who would die for them. Who would die for their sins. Moreover, they wanted a Savior. Obviously, they wanted a Savior. They're crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save us. They knew they couldn't save themselves. They needed somebody to come. But you know, as that history had unfolded, their definition of a Savior had changed as well. They were no longer looking for a Savior from sin. Now they were looking for a Savior from Rome. That's the kind of Savior they wanted now. The kind of a Savior who would, who would raise that army up, be their king, be their political Savior. 
You know, they should have read Psalm 118 a little better. Psalm 118, that's the psalm that we read earlier in our service. It's also where the word Hosanna comes from. You know, the people were shouting at Jesus, Hosanna, save us, Lord. Psalm 118 is the only place in the whole Bible where those words appear. When they shouted those words, they were quoting verbatim Psalm 118. You know, Psalm 118 is part of a group of psalms called the Hallel, or the Songs of Praise. People of Israel always sang the Hallel during Passover. In verses 25 and 26 of the psalm, the, the Israelites would sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they would sing verse 27. This is the verse they left out on the triumphal entry of Jesus. Verse 27, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Now bind the feastal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. What is an altar for? An altar is for making sacrifices. So here's what Psalm 118 was was declaring, and it's what the the people of, of Israel would sing every Passover week. They would sing, Lord, save us. Lord, be our Savior. And then how would that request be answered by God? Well, he would provide a sacrifice for them, a substitutionary sacrifice for their sins. And they would take that sacrificial lamb and they would bind its legs and then take it to the altar and there offer it as a sacrifice for sin. You see, the cry, Lord, save us, wasn't a cry for political salvation. It was a cry for spiritual salvation, to have the sins forgiven to have a new standing with God, a a cry to God that he would provide someone or something, a substitute for us so that we wouldn't have to bear the penalty of our own sins, that that one could bear it instead of us, and therefore we would be saved. That was the cry of Psalm 118. Well, on the day Jesus marched into Jerusalem, the, the crowds were crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save us, but they didn't sing the next part. See, that's what Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to do. He was entering the gates of Jerusalem, there to speak his final words, perform his final actions, and then to be arrested, tried, and crucified, and to be the ultimate fulfillment of those old animal sacrifices, to provide a once and for all sacrifice for sins. The one sacrifice to end sacrifices for all time. You see, the crowds wanted a king. Well, Jesus was coming as a king, but not the kind of king they wanted. And the people wanted a savior. Well, Jesus was coming to be their savior. But by this point in history, the kind of savior he would be was no longer the kind they wanted. They just wanted someone to save them from Rome. And we know that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they wanted because in just a few days' time, this same crowd shouting Hosanna will also be shouting, Crucify Him! He didn't meet their expectations. 
And so now, in their hatred, they just wanted him dead. God would use their hostility to accomplish his purposes for Messiah, to be that sacrifice for his people. You know, there's some remarkable lessons that we can take away from the triumphal entry. Lesson number one, what we think we need and what we really need are seldom the same thing. What we think we need and what we really need are seldom the same thing. Isn't that what happened in Israel? What they truly believed that they needed was a hero who could come and throw off the yoke of their oppressors and give them their dignity back. Let them have their their nation again and to have power and honor again. That's what they thought they needed. Someone who could rescue them from their bad circumstances. That's what they thought they needed. What they really needed, and this is what they had lost sight of, what they really needed was someone who could fix what was broken on the inside of them. See, as awful as, as Roman occupation was, it was not as serious a problem as the sin principle that was in their hearts. That was separating them from God. It was condemning them to an eternity away from God. Until that was fixed, no other fixes would matter. That's what they most needed. They needed their sins forgiven. They needed to be reborn on the inside. And then all of those other things could be taken care of later. The fundamental problem was personal, not political. Now we might ask here, how did they get it so wrong? Like to, to so miss what they really needed. Well, I think it was a process, right? It's a process. Generations of spiritual apathy. They, they grew cold toward the things of God. They were no longer listening to God's prophets. They were no longer taking the, the words of, of Holy Scripture seriously. They would take parts that they liked and set aside the parts that they didn't like, and they would make the, the, the Scriptures fit to whatever they felt their needs were. So it was spiritual apathy leading to a neglect of Scripture and even a twisting of Scripture. And with this lost focus came a redirection from eternal things to temporal things and an identification of their ultimate problem as being political in nature and not personal. See, it was a long, slow process that caused them to finally say, our greatest issue is living under an oppressive political system. And our greatest need is a political hero who can burn that all down and give us something better. It was a long process leading them away from the eternal onto the temporal, away from the personal need of salvation to a political need of salvation. You know, it's much the same in our own time, isn't it? If you ask the average person what are the greatest problems confronting our nation, they will say, oh, it's 
the economy, it's health care, it's education, and, and it's the environment, and they'll, they'll list all of these social political issues. It's like these are the fundamental problems of the day. And you ask them, what is, what is the solution to today's problems? They will say, a political hero. Right? We need someone to rise up who can work through the bureaucracy, cut through all the red tape, someone who can stop everyone from wrangling and give us political programs that will solve these pressing needs. It's the same thing today, and the root cause is the same. Generations of people neglecting God and His Word or going to His Word and taking the parts they like, leaving out the parts that they don't like, and reshaping their worldviews accordingly. If you ask the average person, what are your greatest personal needs? They will say, my greatest personal needs are more money or better behaved children or more likable coworkers or a a better health care plan. They'll list a thousand different things, but none of them will say, I need to be reborn spiritually. Like, there's something, like, seriously wrong inside of here, and I keep doing things I wish I wouldn't do, and I'm not doing things I wish I would do. Wretched man that I am, I need somebody to fix this in here. You're going to be hard-pressed to find a person to answer with that. See, just like the, the ancient Israelites, so too modern Americans say our greatest problem is we've got bad circumstances, an oppressive system, and what is the solution? We need someone to rise up who can burn down the system, give us something new and better. And when our circumstances are better, then everything will be great. We need a king. We need a savior. But we need a political king and savior. It's the same same thing. But what we learn from the story of Jesus is that God has truly provided for our needs. He has. But He has provided for our true needs, not the needs that maybe we have identified. He has provided for our true needs by giving us Jesus, a King and a Savior who can give us the new birth that we need. That's what God has done. See, friends, God... God loves each one of you more than anyone else in your life. In fact, because God is is infinite in all of his attributes, God can love every single one of you individually as if you were the only person who ever existed. That's how much God can love you. And it's how much he does love you. And you know what? In his love for you, yes, God is concerned about the, the circumstances of your life. And he does have a plan one day to fix that, to right every wrong, to give us a a righteous king and a just government and and a perfect society. But what we need first, before any of that, is to have the inside of us fixed. That's the fundamental problem. We... We have a sin nature, and we sin by choice, and it's separated from us, us from God. It's put us on a trajectory toward judgment and hell, and that is what our biggest problem is. And You know, all of the social problems that we confront today just flow out of the fact that all the people running this society are sinners, right? When you have sinful people running the system, you'll have a rotten system. 
Until you fix the inside of people, the outside is always going to be messed up. So God loves us, and He has met our true needs. First, a personal Savior. Someone who who can purge out the sin nature and, and give you a new spirit and new life and new desires. And then, once that is accomplished, and God has called all of His people to personal salvation, then it will be time for the kingdom to come and for righteousness to reign in every sphere. But friends, God has given us exactly what we need. Now, my challenge to you this morning is very simple. Don't be like those crowds who are with Jesus on his triumphal entry. Don't be like them, misidentifying your true need and then hating Jesus when you find out he's not going to meet those misidentified needs. Instead, let him identify your need for you. Listen to him. He says, I came to save you from sin and death and judgment. That's what I came for. Receive me on that basis. We receive him through repentance uh, toward our sin and faith in God through Christ. Take him on his terms as he has revealed himself to us. Take him to be your Messiah and then trust him to work out the rest of the problems afterwards. All right, now let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for Jesus. He is our Messiah. He has met our greatest need by offering a, an all-sufficient sacrifice for sins, by taking all of the judgment that sin deserves and bearing it on his own shoulders. And he rose from the grave that we might know it was fully paid and that there is life for us as well. Lord, I pray that you would prompt every single heart in this room and in the fellowship room and in the living rooms of those watching on the live stream, Lord, that you would prompt every single heart to seek after Jesus and to accept what our real need is and to accept that he is the one that you have provided to meet that true need. Lord, I pray all of these things in his name. Amen.